Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending May 5th. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 to 9 a.m., broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, we learn about the limitless possibilities of cooking with potatoes. And Warwick Thornton, Ketetia man, writer, director, and cinematographer, joins us ahead of his appearance at Melbourne Writers Festival opening night. Koala field researcher and president of Koala Clancy, Janine Duffy, on the plight of Victoria's koala population. Literary legend Don Watson on his take on the king and the coronation. And Besha Rodell on the state of sushi in Melbourne. Back to Back Theatre received last year what's regarded as the Nobel Prize for Theatre. And we spoke with artistic director Bruce Gladwin about their very public high-wire activist show, Small Metal Objects. But we finished the week exploring how much ignorance is bliss before heading into a movie. Triple R. I love potatoes. I think that they're my favourite vegetable. I'm going to say it. But I... But I think potentially they're too versatile. Too versatile. Too versatile because it's their biggest strength but maybe, yeah, their biggest flaw. I have got a big bag of potatoes I need to get through. Um, So I was (laughs) perusing yesterday and I was just completely overwhelmed with the possibility. Hmm. I didn't know which way to go. (laughs) <laughs> do you, I mean... There's a book on my shelf that says 100 things to do with potatoes. Okay, let's hear it. Well, exactly. One. <laughs> yeah. And I presume most of them are cooking. And you're right. Uh, well, how that, do you... Yeah, that's true because there are some folklore around potatoes. I think I heard sometime if you put it under the bed, it's good for rheumatism. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I don't know if that's true, though. What's rheumatism again? Oh, I think it's an it's an ailment that okay. kind of, yeah flicks so, joints and oh, yeah. Okay, well, it can't hurt. Put mm. a potato under there. I mean, they're a staple. They're always there. I feel like more often than not, they're a side dish. You know, you roast potatoes. You do a mashed potato. You do the chips on the side. But ha- what would be your kind of go to? Do you have a go to dish with potatoes? Like where it's it's the main event. It is the meal. The hero, as they might say. Exactly, the hero, the I, main, the lead. I can see Daniel's face light up. I feel like you're no, really... No, no, no. You're right. I am trying to think of where is potato. I mean, I suppose, a, you know, the sp- the classic mm. in the alfoil. The, the baked spuds. Oh, yeah, indeed. baked the potato. Cheesy baked potato is yeah. a genius hero. A it's incredible. For the potato. And the... Is it gratin? Is that right? Potato gratin? Where it's kind of all, all sliced up and baked with like different spices and, and cheese. And indeed, like this. Cream, yes. So you would have a potato gratin with maybe a, a side salad. So the gratin is not the side. It's the potato is. I think that you celebrate it yeah, as, the, as you say, the hero ingredient. But I, it just, yeah, you're right. But the versatility, and there are so many different varieties of potatoes too. It mm-hmm. really is. Yeah, just the the vegetable kiss. There's a listener that says that uh, the it's the hero of the gnocchi. Yes, absolutely. Mm. That was my go-to dish in lockdown that I tried to master. Didn't go near bread, but I tried to. I'm like, I'm going to make perfect gnocchi. Because it does seem like something which is tantalisingly approachable, but there's so many ways that it can go wrong. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it is pretty straightforward, obviously, but, yeah, it's it's in the details, I guess. Not over-mashing the potatoes, not over-rolling it, getting the flour right, then yeah, boiling the gnocchi. But, yeah, you're right. It's, it's a, the hero. Another listener says mashed potatoes, just Irish guacamole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I love that. But I, I struggle, not struggle, but sometimes, yeah, I wonder what, like, I feel like mashed potato goes with meat, like bangers and mash. What else do you put it with? Fish and chips. Some, Fish and chips. says on the yeah, text line too. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, there's a lot of passion for the potato. It's there, but. I mean, obviously that's a joke, isn't it? Because there's no way the chips are the hero of fish and chips. <laughs> who said who Unless said, for a six-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> I struggle to put mashed potato with because being vegetarian, sometimes it just feels I'm not sure what to put the mashed potato with. It, yes, no. I mean, I mean, I suppose classically like, yeah, maybe, sausages or peas or something like this. My yeah. counterintuitive hero for breakfast would be the potato rosti. <gasps> Yum. Um, What's worthy. the difference between a rosti and a hash brown? Is there a difference? Uh yeah, I mean, a culinary expert would have a better answer than me, but it seems like a Rossi has more of a grated aspect. I think I think that must be it. Okay. And I love to grate. So you grate the potato. And I think squeeze all of the liquid out so that it becomes more susceptible to frying. Yeah, potential. okay, sure. Potential. And the hash brown is battered. Gosh. Well, it's fr- I mean, it's... Oh, yeah, well, potentially. Potentially, That's right. yeah. There's, gee, you're going to have so many options okay, with fantastic. your potatoes. Let's go. Uh, the CWA apparently <laughs> says the potato is a key ingredient in a Boston bun. What? <laughs> That's wild. That's what we call my mum's van, the Boston bun. How come? Because it's brown and then it's got a white top. So it's like a Boston with the icing. Is that the same as a sticky bun? Yes. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like the, the, the fruit bun with the icing on top. They're delicious. Mm. Getting yeah. a few more uh, suggestions coming through. <laughs> with the potatoes struck a chord, I yeah, love it. the Massaman curry as well. Oh, yes, beautiful. That's yep. a great suggestion. Yeah, the it, potato curry, like a potato in a curry is excellent. I mean, you could also use the bag of potatoes. I did see a video recently where someone was attempting to perfect the roasted potatoes. So I suppose yep. with such a, a supply that you have, mm. you could really sort of experiment with different techniques. Yeah, that's so great, like different spices. Different spices, different uh, fats to kind of produce the ultimate sort of crispy exterior. Yeah, a tater tasting platter. Yeah. So, I'd love to have a dinner party with just potatoes. That would be lovely. What a yeah. great idea you yeah. really deplete that bag <laughs> it's also strikes me the fact that your mum can drive around a van just shows the difference between me and your mother because if i wouldn't be allowed to drive a van, a van. around that's nickname was the finger bun the bu- <laughs> there's no chance i'd get away with it well the boston bun finger bun mm. that was i had a finger bun every day for really yeah it's i know someone healthy what were my parents thinking <laughs> Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Warwick Thornton's vast credits include the cinematic six-part documentary, The Beach, feature film Sweet Country, the high-octane Indigenous Vampire Hunters TV series Firebite, and his latest movie, The New Boy, which is set to debut at Cannes, which will be the filmmaker's second appearance at the festival, following 2009 Samson and Delilah, for which he won the Camera Door Award for first-time directors. Warwick is part of the Melbourne Writers' Festival opening night event titled I've Been Away for a While, and to tell us about the intersection of visual and the written language, the director, screenwriter and cinematographer joins us now. Warwick, welcome back to Breakfasters. Hi. <laughs> now, before we get into writing, tell us about reading. Are you a, are you a good reader? Do you need no? Spa- no okay, I, um, I detest reading. <laughs> uh, I, I wait for the movie to come out. I think. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I yeah I kind of didn't. I left school very early, and then it became very apparent that um, I couldn't read or write when I wanted to actually read and write. So it's, it's been a, it's been a long process 
Does that make your own writing a bit of a torture? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, it's one of those. It's it's the it's one of the greatest pains in the world. Is that it's you know because I, I I can't I don't own a computer so I just if I've got an idea I'll go down to the local um, news agency and buy some blank A4 books um, you know student books and some pens and just start. Like, yeah. You know. So I write by hand everything. And there's ever-suffering people who type that into <laughs> into computers and things like that. Yeah. I don't know if this pairs out for everybody, but I have heard that the the more painful the writing process, the more beautiful the output. So I suppose. Oh no, you can you can yeah yes that that's a very romantic <laughs> idea. I've, I've, it's more like it's just fucking pain. <laughs> it's stop. just pain, full stop. full stop. And you know the. Yeah, um, I, I have a, um, an, a, a, a reward system that if I write five pages, I'm allowed to go to the pub. <laughs> oh, nice. I it's love pretty it. simple. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've heard a bit or listened to another interview, you speaking about your process is that you kind of – it's quite fluid in the fact that you just like to start with an idea Ooh. like of the ending – uh, and I, then you're yeah. happy to kind of play in between. I can't pick. I can't pick the pen up until I know exactly what the ending is. Yeah, I wow. Can't, I can't flutingly just, uh, you know, uh, swashbuckle around, scribbling crap down without knowing exactly where it's going. Yeah, I can't do that. It has to be. It has to be there. Defining, you know what I mean? Yeah. What about as a cinematographer when you read a description? Do you rely on descriptions to help you capture an image? A lot of big print, a lot of um, a lot of sort of rumbling and mumblings about you know how amazing the clouds are, and, <laughs> you know the the colour of dawn, and you know all that sort of cinematic devices of visual. You know, the big print is where the visuals happen and, you know, the, the small print is obviously where dialogue happens. And So there's a lot of big print. Um, and it's, 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 it's there for me as a cinematographer because, you know, as a writer, I'm only writing for, the, for the, my ego as a cinematographer and what I can shoot, you know, in a strange way. So it's, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of it and it's, it's really good to get your page, page count up, you know, it's sort of... The more you ramble, even though um, you know that's more like a, a novel than a, than a than a film script. The more you ramble, the more the page counts up, and the more it looks like it's a you know it's a it's a, a thick good movie. Mm. You must be tempted then to go. Well, I'll just shoot <laughs> yeah. commercials or something. I mean, or... no, I detest that, <laughs> that well, world. And yeah, well, we've spoken about this before, but um, it, if it is a uh, if it is difficult, sometimes do you. You know, is there any joy at all in the difficulty or oh, no, the reward hey, after? Hey, the, the, you know, the, the, the red wine, the rock and roll and the red <laughs> carpet, you know what I mean? That's that's the joy. Yeah. Um, it is, you know, it takes, it takes you know, that's that's why the, the theme for this year is so perfect for me. You know, I've been away a long time. It takes me 10 years for a script. You know, I've got five scripts going at the same time, but... The one uh, new boy that we're, you know, it's about to be released, uh, being Khan and that, eighteen years. Wow, eighteen years. Uh, you know, the reality is eighteen years because it was a badly written script. Right. You know what I mean? And it, it kind of wasn't in the right place. But it took eighteen years to, to for me to get older and me to live a bit more and, and for me to be, you know, a more knowledgeable human being to get to the place where I could actually. Rewrite it and um, 
and get it get it off the page and onto the screen. Mm. Was, was there one creative epiphany for this script, the, the gestation that's taken so long? Was there something that really accelerated for you, like, actually, I can it was, make this it, real? Yeah, totally. It, very clearly, it was a phone call from Kate Blanchett saying, Warwick, life's too short, let's make a movie together. Wow, imagine that, Kate Blanchett calling you up and saying, let's do it. That's yeah, going to yeah. be a huge moment. Pretty awesome for your ego. Yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty rock and roll. Yeah, no, it's Kate. Yeah, no, it's, let's go and make a movie together. Hang on, I'll just... I'll just I would just go to the pub and get drunk first and, <laughs> and uh, celebrate that phone call. <laughs> and then the reality comes in that, you know, oh, shit, you're going to do something with Kate. You know what I mean? And sort of like that script had been floating around the bottom of my drawers, you know what I mean? Um, and then pulling it out and going, have a read of this one, Kate. And then she's going, I love it. And then and then starting to re- rebuild it to do with um, her as, as a as a new character in the film and that's but they just take that long you know mm-hmm. but, yeah. but that's it that's it but it takes someone like Kate Blanchett to call you to to actually get things happening again I suppose it's a result of both is um isn't it that certainly the the impulse um as you mentioned of of that kind of ca- yeah catalyst but also the the deep process of reflection and the sort of yeah it, iteration over time as you as you gain wisdom and and you gain new experiences yeah yeah I've, you know I've, I've, I've you know I've, you know my, my earlier years as a writer and as a director you know it's pretty much a lot of emulating other people and there's nothing wrong with that you know what I mean you 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 love a, a director or a writer and you sort of go, I love the way they write or the way they direct. So when I was young, I was sort of like, so I was just emulating other people. But then slowly you become much more, as you get older and you, you live, you love, you die, you cry more, you, you understand humanity a little bit better, you start focusing on what you believe properly, you know what I mean? And that's maybe where the, the theme comes in, I've been away Oh, for a while, because without that time of reflection, you're not able to reach that point. Is that yeah, right? yeah, totally, absolutely. You know, and I think I've been away for a while. Maybe it's got a, you know a fair bit to do with obviously COVID, but it's um, you know, the irony of me and COVID is that, that it, it was like, okay, well, let's turn let's turn the lockdown into something incredibly positive, and you know, I was trying to raise those three those trying to raise out of my memory those three chords that I was taught when I was. 12, you know, what I mean, on a guitar because I hate those chords and find find a new, you know, somewhere new on the neck and with those strings, you know, but the reality is it was just this sort of, it didn't happen that way with me, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, well, I'll just write another film. If, we, if we're locked down, I'll just, you know, put a mask on and go to the news agency, buy some um, books, you know, and then and some pens and write some more. Didn't happen. <laughs> no, yes. it's, it was just complete... And sadly, when you when you do do that, you set yourself up to fail. You know what I mean? And you just feel, I'm, I've, I've failed. And it's like, no, just have a break. You know what I mean? Mm. You're lucky you're not dead, you dickhead. You mm. know what I mean? Just 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 have a break and 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 digest. But it, it, there's one thing to like have a break, I guess. Um, but it's. I don't know if this is true or not, but it sounds like, you know, there's the the process of sitting down with the pen and paper, but your works are, like, bubbling in your brain for, like, you know, 18 years. This is, like, do you feel like they're always all the different projects you have in your mind? Kind of, are you kind of writing them simultaneously day to day as you go about life, collecting yeah, experiences? Yeah, yeah, it's just people that you meet when you're walking down the street in your neighbourhood. They're the people who empower you to 
you see things, you go, wow, that, you know, that's be- that's better than any fiction I can write. So I'm going to put that in this next movie. You know what I mean? You've you've got these characters and you've got these scenarios, and they're just sitting in your head. You've got your ending, but and then you're just seeing things in life and going, that works great for that movie. Or will it work good for that movie? You know what I mean? So you just sort of, you know, you you're just sucking things up and mm. you know yeah. with your obsession with light and the image what is your relationship with dialogue is it a necessary evil well, my, you know my life is generally full of grunts and whistles and <laughs> the, you know what I mean as a teenager I couldn't do the perfect paragraph on how I feel about um, someone I'm in love with you know what I mean it was more me throwing rocks at them so which is a great visual you know what I mean but you know that's a, you can always see a movie where you know they're sort of like that. You know, it's been written by a sixty-year-old man, but it's this you know this thirteen-year-old girl telling you know their friend how they feel about. <laughs> oh come on! No, we're not sorry. It's, you know, it's, it's it's more yeah, it's more grunts and whistles where I come from rather than you know, than um than you know oh. The, when he walks in the room, the light shines. He was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work that way with me, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Well, tell us about this opening night then. You've, you, uh, you've got the ending sorted, I presume. Uh, I, I've got the ending sorted. You know, just actually, t- I've, I've been so blase about this and then actually coming in here and talking, I've just got really... Thanks, guys. Yeah. Yeah. But you know no, how no, no, this interview ends and it ends well. Up. Yeah, I've got an, end. I've got an ending. And <laughs> something about I've been away for a long time. You know, that, that's there. So we've got that part done. So we'll 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 have we'll have a glass of red wine and meet some people and we'll work it out. Well, in terms of your own attitude towards your own practice, do you ever you've talked about say COVID and not beating yourself up if you're not as productive or whatever, and maybe yeah. you need Kate Blanchett to make a phone call to yeah. put the fire there's up. Always, you know, and you know, and if it all fails, there's always that crystal ball called you know a you know a schooner of VB. Mm. You know what I mean? That that amber that amber crystal ball Good that you clarity. can look into very clearly. You know, and you know, everything sort of looks a bit better through sort of an amber tint. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to go see Warwick Thornton tonight, uh, you'll be appearing as part of the Melbourne Writers' Festival opening night event, I've Been Away a While, and you can get tickets at mwf.com.au. Now, when are you off to Cannes? Oh, um, you know, we haven't even finished the film. <gasps> yeah. And Cannes in two weeks. So, wow. So, I, I, you know, straight after this, I've, I've got to run back to Sydney and, and finish this bloody thing. And, you know, it's 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 done. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. We haven't mixed it yet. So, so it's and, the you know, sound. And, we, you know, we've actually... Warren Ellis and Nick Cave have done the soundtrack to it, the score to it, which wow. is just... You wait till you hear this. It's insane. It's nothing like you'd ever thought these two blokes could do. It's just... Big movie, big picture score stuff. Did and you they like, just rocked did it. Did you enjoy the proposition? Hey, yes, absolutely. I love the proposition. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. some big hitters on this. This yeah, is yeah, 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 yeah. Was, yeah, absolutely. Kate Blanchett, Warren and Nick. <laughs> yeah, just casually Blair. dropping them in an interview. Yeah. No biggie. Love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Mm. How? What about the whole standing ovation metric? Is that a bit weird? Or do you buy into the the what comes out of Cannes with the gossip and the the heat and the buzz. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, Samson Delilah had a, you know, it's probably it's pretty good, pretty easy six to eight minute standing ovation. Wow. But by the time it, you know the word got back to Australia, I think it was like thirty two minutes. That's right. <laughs> There's inflation. The, the perfect. You know, Barramundi. Did you get a photo of it? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, was it really that big? Well, you know. 
well, there's so much to look forward to. The new film, which is called, what, The New Boy? New Boy, yeah. It sounds like it's going to be iconic already. Uh, it's, you know, 1940s orphanage, a little bit of genre, a little bit of rock and roll, home of Nick Cave and Warren Ellis and... Um, a bit of Warwick Thornton. All right. Well, Warwick Thornton, you can catch at the Melbourne Writers Festival tonight at 6pm, mwf.com.au. Thanks so much for joining us, Warren. Uh, Warwick Thank Thornton. you. Thank you for having me. Melbourne's own Triple R. For Feature Creatures this week, we're joined by Koala, field researcher and founder of the newly formed Koala Alliance Victoria. It's Janine Duffy. Welcome to Breakfasters. Oh, g'day. Good to be here, Daniel. Uh, Happy Wild Koala Day for yesterday. Oh, thank you. It's a good day. It's a day about forests. It's a day about koalas in the wild where they're meant to be. Yeah, right. Now, you've got a nose for koalas, quite literally. (laughs) Yeah, I've been looking up koala noses all my working life. How weird. Yeah. (laughs) Why? How? Do you know you can tell them apart by their noses? Had no idea. Yeah, isn't it amazing? Um, in 1998, I was spending a lot of time with koalas and I wanted to get to know them as individuals so that I could get an idea of their population size. And I noticed that you can tell them apart by their patterns in their noses. So they've got the white kind of bit inside their nostrils. The rest of the nose, as you know, is black. Mm. But the pattern of the white is unique to every koala and it stays that way their whole life. Now, you of all, you discovered this, is that right? Yeah, I did. I, I thought someone else would have noticed, but nah. <laughs> <laughs> and then what's the ripple effect of this discovery? Oh, that's a, such a good question. It means that we can get a sense of their population size, whether they're declining or increasing, because normally if you do a count, you don't know if you're double counting the animals, you know, if you go there once every week or something. Whereas by using this, you can get an instant sense of how many are really in the forest. Mm. And the bad news is the numbers are going down. Yeah. Just quickly to backtrack on the the method of distinguishing the koalas by their noses, like how long did it take you to for it to go from a hunch to be a recognised method oh, of measuring how many koalas are in the wild? Such a good question. Uh, it took me a year to see it, Nat. Yep. And then at about seven years to have known a koala long enough mm. to be sure that it was not going to change. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. And do you have a wall at home with different pictures <laughs> or how do you commemorate your discovery? <laughs> it's a good question. Oh, look, um, I have a, so a series of photographs of koalas, mostly on a great big hard drive. Um, and I also have them in my head. So most of them, when I see them, I just know them instantly now. Um, but occasionally, if you see one only once every two years, I have to go back through the the photos. Yeah. What else do we need to know about koalas that you still find intriguing despite your vast knowledge? Oh, oh can I ask you a question? What do you think a female koala finds most attractive about a male koala? I'll give you three options. All right. Can I have a guess first? Yeah. A good listener? <laughs> a good listener? Yeah. It's a very good point. So is it his looks? Is it his smell? Or is it his voice? <gasps> oh, I'm going to say smell. 
Smell from Nat. Okay, I would also like to echo that answer. Two for smell. Voice. Oh, Daniel. It's his voice. Whoa. It is. It's such a radio thing, isn't it? Yeah, I have a bias. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I must admit, I'm a bit the same. I, I love a good voice. The girl koalas will listen in the forest mm. for the sounds of males. And they'll listen and they'll think, oh, he sounds hot. Mm. And they'll leave their home range and walk three kilometres to get to him. <gasps> wow. And then they'll just hang out there until he chooses to come over and do what needs to be done. Amazing. So the mating ritual essentially is a koala. Is he yelling? Is he like, what's he doing? What no, What's he saying? What's he saying? Yeah, what's he saying? Have you heard it? No, I don't think so. Can I do it? Yes, yeah. please you can. <laughs> it's something like this. <laughs> That's well, that incredible. Was just superb. <laughs> I, Easily the highlight of my week. Uh, yeah? <laughs> it's uh, better. Right. And how does that differentiate to the actual mating? Well, she goes <laughs> over there. Um, she sort of hangs out in a tree next to him. I suppose she smells and looks gorgeous, you know. Yeah. He's probably got about five or six hanging around mm. at this time because he's so attractive because he's got the deepest voice. And uh, and then he just sort of saunters over. And, and during the day we've often seen the males approach the females. The female goes all coy then and says, nah, nah, nah. Um, and she fights him off. And she's got claws, like you wouldn't believe, so she can fight him off. Um, but he keeps on trying. He's persistent. I mean, there's so many parallels with humans, yeah? Yeah, definitely. Oh, amazing. So uh, now, where are you in all this? Are you just standing around waiting to shove a cotton bud up their nostril? <laughs> Lighting candles. <laughs> no, that's probably not a good idea in the bush. <laughs> I'm standing there in the forest just absolutely loving being with them. I, I mean, it's my dream job. I, I really love working with koalas. But um, it's also pretty sad, mm. I've got to tell you. Well, Tell with, us about yeah, yeah. With regards to the population, you were saying that there's a significant decline. Could you talk to us a little bit about yeah what you're seeing and what needs to be done? Yeah, um, I talk to a lot of people. Um, I talk to farmers, people who've been there many generations on the land, all over Victoria, and this they always ask me the same question: Where have the koalas gone? Now, this really scares me because they're seeing the same thing as I'm seeing, which is massive declines in their numbers across most of Victoria. And I think the Victorian public are really worried about koalas. You know, the amount of emails and messages we get is amazing. Um, And I think they've got good reason to be worried. And I want to let them know that we're here to listen to them now. The Koala Alliance Victoria is here. We're going to listen Um, we're going to take action on some of the things that need to be done that are getting overlooked and ignored in this state. Because you don't feel like it's being um, accurately represented in the media or reported, uh, the the dwindling numbers in Victoria specifically. Exactly. So the government is obsessed with this idea that they're overabundant. Mm -hmm. Now, they're there are a couple of places where there are. There's no doubt about it and action needs to be taken there for sure. Mm-hmm. But they're not even doing that. Um, they don't have a plan for doing anything about that that's positive except killing them. I, 
I know. Mm. Uh, this is not acceptable to the Victorian public to just kill them. The rest of Victoria's koalas, they're just ignoring. Mm. It's like they're not even there. And soon that will be the case. They won't be there. We just need, I'm sorry to say, a couple of big fires. And Victoria's koala population are completely stuffed. Right. Now that you've founded this alliance and brought together a few different disparate groups, what's possible? Oh, yes. Um, What is possible is that there is an alternative view to what the government is putting out. And I think that's really important that that happens. So the government says something, we think it's wrong, we'll say what we think is right. Um, We'll get scientific advice, we'll get advice from people on the ground, and we'll give an alternative view. Now, you can choose whether you want to agree with one or the other or something in between, but someone needs to be giving the alternative view. So it's a pretty controversial space. Oh, yes. It's a passionate space too. Mm. And what are the the leading factors, I guess, in the dwindling numbers? Is it like climate change? Is it deforestation? Combination of both? Nat, our forests are dying. Mm. Now, forests are very, very old and they tend to change slowly. And the best indicator of forest health is the animal's. So when the animals are dying out, and this goes for koalas, this goes for birds, this goes for all sorts of invertebrates, when they're declining, it's a sign that something is wrong. Mm. Now, we all know it's climate change, don't we? Mm. Um, Before those terrible megafires, the forests in East Gippsland were looking terrible because of long drought. Animals were disappearing from those forests. This is an indicator. Act on it. Koalas are a great indicator because we love them and because they're big and they're noticeable and the world adores them. We just need to listen to what they're telling us. And we can act on koalas, but it's the forests that we have to protect. We, and, and, mate, we need to stop cutting them down. <laughs> we just don't have enough left for Vic Forest to be cutting them down and then we foot the bill. Mm. How high can a koala go in a tree? They go to the very top. <laughs> In fact, that's their favourite place to be. Okay. Of any size tree, what's the highest koala you've seen? Like, how'd you get up there? Oh, yeah. Um, over in East Gippsland where there's really tall forest, um, sort of 30 metres, no, more. Jeez, 50. Wow. That's yeah, quite a drop. No worries. Oh, yeah, they don't fall. Okay. Uh, look, we'll have to get you back. Is that all right? To oh, yeah. unpack more koala issues. Uh, it's Jadine Duffy. Where can we, where should we go if we want to have a look at the work that the Koala Alliance Victoria is doing? Koalasvictoria.au. Okay, beautiful. Janine, thanks very much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me here. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Don Watson is the award-winning author of The Passion of Private White, Death Sentence, Recollections of a Bleeding Heart, The Bush and Watsonia, A Writing Life, which includes decades of musings on everything from Mark Twain to the monarchy. So, with Prime Minister Albanese now in London for the coronation of the man formerly known as Charles Philip Arthur George Mountbatten Windsor, who better to hear from than the acclaimed essayist and former speechwriter. Don Watson, welcome back to Breakfasters. Hello. Now, will you be pledging allegiance this weekend? (laughs) No, I don't think it's mandatory. <laughs> um, you can face south and drop your pyjama trousers <laughs> if you want. But um, uh, 
it's, we should be thankful that it's not mandatory. And, um, but that's the trouble with heads of state, you know. If you give them power, they're dangerous, like Kaiser Wilhelm or John Kerr. If you give them no power, they're a sort of waste of time, except that you can have a laugh. Mm. Um, and you wonder why they're there, really. Maybe they're very important in that sense. They're figureheads. But it's hard to see why. I just have trouble with Charles, frankly, as a head of state. I mean, we, we grew up with Elizabeth, and she just sat there for years and years and years, and everyone th- thought, well, it's good she's there. <laughs> At least it's something that's continuous. But Charles just has a look about him. And uh, in any event, I don't know quite whether it makes sense anymore to have a British head of state for Australia, but then it doesn't make much sense to have an Australian head of state for Australia either. Mm. So I've been thinking that maybe we need a kind of an android AUKUS, <laughs> you know, the great god AUKUS. We could build a huge memorial statue to him in Canberra or something and with three heads representing the three countries and six arms and six legs <laughs> and maybe three little legs entwined. <laughs> yeah, it's a very blokey thing, you know, and... and and it could have a kind of recording in it saying howdy or something like that every, <laughs> every five minutes. He's and future civilizations, should they ever come to Earth, will know that, you know, something about us. Yes. Well, he's pretty... You've, you've noted in an essay in the monthly that he's a, a genuine eccentric, isn't he? Charlie, yeah, he is. He's, a, he's really a kind of 19th century high Tory, but with hippie overtones, you know, that somehow they got in there. He's had some very strange influences like Lawrence van der Post and people who many would say are frauds. Um, as Christopher Hitchens said, you know, he's prey to any spoon bender going around. But um, I think he's probably decent up to a point. Um, but he's, he's a sort of high Tory who, of course, like Teals and so on, are well to the left of the old Tory, you know, what, is, what remains of the Conservative Party. It puts him in an odd position. Mm. And he's a Green, um, although I don't know. The infantry at Buckingham Palace may not be entirely Green. I don't know how much methane they put out. <laughs> That's right. Um, but it's, uh, no, it's a curious thing for us to... Uh, Albanese is swearing allegiance to him in the next 24 hours, apparently. That'll be a sight. Mm. Do you get down on one knee? I don't know. Well, what goes on behind this curtain? I don't know. None of us know. <laughs> My eight-year-old swears he saw the Queen um, when he went to Buckingham Palace. From I said, no, you wouldn't have seen her. He said, I did. She was standing in a window. And I said, no, she never stands in a window. And he said, well, if it wasn't the Queen, it was someone who looked very like her. <laughs> and I thought, that's about it, really. It could be anyone. That's the purpose, except we with our British heritage, have a monarchy that still dresses up, whereas the European monarchies pretty well are indistinguishable from the hoi polloi, really. They just cycle around and no-one takes much notice. That That is an alternative, I guess. Mm. What is the Achilles heel, do you think, for the monarchy or for King Charles? Well, as far as I can tell, I don't read this stuff, but I, I, I see the headlines on my... You know, my online newspapers, it seems to be Harry, isn't it? And Megan. They're Achilles' heels, I think. Okay. But it probably goes deeper than that. And that is that Britain has become, is 
going down a sinkhole, really, a post-Brexit sinkhole. And everyone's very miserable. The monarchy has always served conservatism. I mean, the people of Britain are much more radical than successions of conservative um, governments indicate. And the monarchy plays a part in that, in keeping conservatives in power. But now the Conservative Party has become such a bunch of ratbags where they've had to go to a hedge fund manager to sort of look after things for the time being. Um, the monarchy is sort of now positioned left of the government. And yet it looks... It's a sort of 19th century invention, most of the forms of it, which they pretend go back to the Anglo-Saxons or something. I see there's a big old stone that's they include in their ceremonies. Mm. But it was really invented in Victorian times, most of the things, their gilt carriages. So if you start driving a gilt carriage through a bunch of homeless people, you know, it's, you've got to take account of all this stuff. There's a, <laughs> yeah. lot of, there's a lot of management of the image required. You gave a speech to at Mietta's 30 years ago uh, this year about a republic and I was wondering about pragmatism and Australia's pragmatism and how that plays into the debate about the monarchy or republicanism. Yes. Well, that's... I vaguely remember that. That, that was a euphoric moment after we... Labor won the 93 election having come from nowhere, like Collingwood in the last quarter, really, we were. And um, it... Um, I wouldn't like to read it now, but we did sort of have a... We fancied then that Australia was on a kind of path towards a sort of postmodern republic, um, opening itself up to Asia, becoming a genuine multicultural pluralist society, a lovely little social democratic republic in the South Seas was sort of notion. I think that's long faded, you know, there's between that moment and this one, there's John Howard and Tony Abbott and Scott Morrison and Malcolm for all he was worth. Um, and I think we've really gone backwards, plus a failed referendum on the republic, which was thoroughly stuffed up. Um, which basically John Howard ran to put the Republic off the field. Mm. Um, I don't know whether he'd ever revive that moment. Maybe. If we did, it would come back in a different form um, in many ways. But I, And I think the other thing that's happened is the, the, the idea of Australia as having some kind of sovereign credibility, independent if, you know, friendly with the United States. I heard someone say the other day, we, should, we must keep the alliance in all its forms and therefore be part of the 800 bases spread around the world that America has. Even as the hegemon crumbles, we must nevertheless remain friendly, but we must also assert our sovereignty. <laughs> and you say, but that's the trouble. Since ANZUS was formed, we've never asserted our sovereignty, ever. Not once. Briefly, when Whitlam condemned the bombing of Hanoi and early 1970s, for which we got a slap on the face. But the, as we interpret the alliance, we can't assert it. They say, oh, no, we've got a voice in Washington. Well, if we've had a voice, they haven't been listening or we're giving them very bad advice. Um, 
So to be a kind of a country thinking for itself and trying to be a good citizen in the Asia-Pacific, we've given that up. Mm. Did you posit once, with a degree of irony, I don't know, that we should just sign up and be the 51st state oh, yeah. of the United I, States? I did, and the young Tony Abbott accused me of hating my own country. Um, no, there was a sort of logic to it, as there is now to the AUKUS god, I think, um, because it, it, we would be bigger than Texas. Um, we'd literally have a seat at the table. Um, I, was, I was being ironic, of course. <laughs> you know. um, but for all the difference it makes, both with American soft power and hard power, we may as well be, you know, because we never do anything that might offend them. And so we can't go to China except on, the, on American terms. We can't go and say, whether we're sort of making a case about Taiwan or a case about the Uyghurs, and we come in bad faith every time because the Chinese know where our fealty is to the US. This is not an anti-American position. No. It might well be, but it's just, what are we doing down here? What did you make of your old boss's comments going, uh, you know, viral, shall we say? Yeah, well, it reminded me of the days when you tried to warn him against going off, <laughs> you know, attacking journalists, which is like attacking the weather. I mean, you can't change it. Mm. They're going to be like that. You're only going to make it worse. And attacking Penny Wong, who's everyone's... You know, people want Penny Wong to be... a great success so whatever whatever the merits of that it made the story about Paul which is not a good thing it would have been better if the story had been about what he was saying which I think was 90% true and needed to be said and it, it would have put more heat on the Labor Party if he'd said it without making it about him mm. um, they would have had to they couldn't deflect it by saying, oh, he's yesterday's man or he's anything. They would have said, we've got to think about this. You've uh, written an obituary for your friend Bruce Petty in the recent edition of The Monthly. What do you think Bruce would make of this moment? Where, where do you think the humour and comedy lies in the farce of the modern world? Oh, I, I, it's very hard. You'd have to be petty to find something funny in it. I... I think these are the worst times I've ever... <laughs> the most dangerous times I've ever lived through. Um, whether I was, you know, conscious or unconscious during the Cold War, um, there are a few near misses. But now it seems every angle is potentially catastrophic. And far from having a bunch of leaders who offer some hope of getting us out of it, I don't see anything. Um, they're either insipid or they're brutes and um, I'm sorry on triple R you know during your breakfast if you could get someone who might have a no it's <laughs> a, a, a happier idea there's something refreshing about it yeah. it's very hard to see but uh, I think Bruce would have done his tangle of lines I think he would have loved doing AUKUS because he 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 did have a way of doing foreign policy and that um, pointed up the 
ludicrousness or the assumptions behind so much of it. That's the thing, you know. And Bruce loved the idea that, you know, behind what we saw, the real power was happening. Even, you know, the machinery without any comp care for us was sort of was working away. So, I mean, I think, you know, chat GBT and, and so on were all up Bruce's alley and almost, um, you know, he was almost a prophet of this sort of thing. It's such a pity he's gone and such a pity, you know, he wasn't cartooning over the last four or five years. Mm. He did... His his son told us at the memorial that the last words he spoke was he, he sat up and said, this is absolutely mad. And then he laid down again the top of his head and I thought, what a perfect way of... <laughs> perfect summation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I tell you what, if you want to read uh, Don Watson's obituary, grab the latest issue of the monthly. The Passion of Private White is still out, and you're you're out today. I was talking at Rotary about Rotary financed a lot of the um, uh, the work that went on at the community. I wrote about, and um, they, they did great works behind the scenes and unheralded. So I'm. I will go along today and herald them. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, uh, we look forward to talking again, hopefully, about uh, issues that pop up. Don Watson, always a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Triple R. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. It's time for an urgently needed food interlude with Epicurean and seasoned sushi-trained commuter, Besha Odell. <laughs> morning, Besha. Good morning. Uh, now, the state of the sushi. Yes, the state of the sushi is good. <laughs> <laughs> what a relief. Which is nice because i got to say, you know, I, I grew up in Australia and then went to the US for 20-something years. And when I got back, I was pretty horrified by the state of the sushi. I don't think that people know but like the thing that we do here of like jamming a bunch of mayonnaise into some rice and eating it for five dollars on the street is not <laughs> what other people call sushi you make it sound so enticing <laughs> yeah and it's I, I found it a bit horrifying i mean you know look eat what you love if that's your jam good good on you but um but there was really kind of only a couple games in town in, in terms of really good uh, you know, high-end sushi, um, and that has changed so much really in the last couple of years and in the last 12 months in particular. So I'm just – I'm really excited about what's happening with that. You know, you used to only be able to get, like, tuna and salmon and sometimes canned tuna, which, mm. again, horrifying. <laughs> um, <laughs> and now there's all of these uh, sushi chefs out there, you know, using local fish, getting fish from Japan, um, bringing in really, really interesting stuff. And um, it's, you know, it's 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 definitely a trend that I, um, half of, it feels like half the restaurants I'm reviewing right now are sushi. That's so interesting. And I guess before we get into the specifics of the, the sushi places that you're finding, um, would you say there are factors behind this sort of shift? Um, I think with anything, you know, honestly, it's interesting. I think that uh, Josh Nyland, who's a chef in um, Sydney and not a sushi chef, um, should be given a lot of credit because he has really made people in Australia think about seafood differently. He um, is one of the first people to, you know, kind of be dry aging fish the way that you would do uh, meat. And his restaurants in Sydney are just great. And they got a ton of um, interest, even overseas. You know, his his cookbook won a James Beard Award in the US, which I don't think has ever happened 
happened to an Australian chef before. So I think that um, he kind of was part of people thinking about fish differently and thinking we have so much amazing seafood in Australia. It is actually one of our biggest, you know, things that other countries and places don't have, but we weren't really using it. At least the chefs um, weren't using it. And so now um, I think it's that paired with, you know, a general interest in Japanese food that, you know, our tastes are just getting a little better <laughs> in, in that sense and um, bringing, you know, some chefs who uh, came to work for big groups, um, you know, going out on their own, starting their own little things. So it's just, I think the appetite is there now where it may not have been um, 10 years ago. And that's, that's the main factor. What's a barrier, do you think, to mainstreaming of good sushi still? Is that, do we have to over, are we not familiar with certain fishes? Or is it to I walk think us so, that? yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't actually by the there's there's all kinds of arguments every time I talk about any kind of food that I, you know I, I talk about why do we not want to spend money on noodles when we'll spend money on pasta that kind of stuff that is kind of based in racism honestly or at least kind of an imperialist look at the world but um, but I think that everyone says oh Australians just want something cheap and cheerful like that's something that you hear so much and they're used to the thing that they have and I actually don't think that we're kind of that lame. I mean, you know, I think we, we do, we're very interested in lots of different kinds of foods. We have such a multicultural society and, and our food tastes have been multicultural forever. I just think that, um, there's probably a reluctance on the part of business banks, you know, all of those things to fund people to take those chances because once people start taking the chances for the most part it works like people are excited about kind of new things things that are a little more you know difficult maybe to eat but like I mean sushi has been around now and in the public consciousness for so long I mean I, I remember New Yorker cartoons in the 80s where it was like that was the sushi was like oh you're a fancy person mm. who eats raw fish gross I, I mean that, that was what 50 40 years ago yeah. so you know I think that we're way past that mm. does sushi have to have raw fish to be sushi I'm vegetarian like can you get some um yeah you can get I mean, there's definitely vegetarian sushi, yes, but I yes, would say, yeah, I would say for the high end, I mean, and it can have partially cooked fish, it, you know, yeah. it's, it's all kinds of stuff, but uh, the classic is, yes, is yes, raw fish. Yes, yes, yeah. Yep. And what's the role of seaweed in this cuisine? Uh, it's huge. Um, even if, you know, there's, so the two main things kinds of sushi people would know of are uh, the, the rolls and then the nigiri. Um, both of the rolls almost always have seaweed um, wrapping them and uh, nigiri doesn't necessarily have seaweed but a lot of times the fish itself is cured with kombu which is a, another kind of seaweed um, and it just adds, seaweed has so much umami, it's basically like it's natural MSG. So it gives that real savory wonderful quality to um, to a lot of any kind of sushi that you're going to have. I mean, it's not always used in every single piece, but it's a massive part of the, the cuisine in general. Mm. Is, is seaweed, 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 or do you think you can – there gradations of – Oh, pork? yeah, there's definitely different kinds of seaweed. I mean, the the, the, the kind of flat, um, dry nori is, um, is, the, is the one that you would see the most. But like I said, there's 
giant kelp. There's all kinds of uh, different kinds that are used. Mm. I love it in Japan how they um, pack it separately. Yeah. And you do the nori yourself. I always feel like I'm rolling a big giant cigarette. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's so fun. Yeah. Yeah. What about uh, the idea of the soy? Where are we at with that? Um, Again, it's really, really changing. And I would say... Um, you know, the soy, the wasabi, the ginger. Um, There's a restaurant in Kew called Sushi On, which is one of the newer, really great places that um, he actually does pickled fennel along with the pickled uh, ginger. So it's like, um, but soy sauce is like wine almost, you know, it is, it comes in so many different varieties and so many different um, gradations and a really good sushi chef will use different kinds of soy sauce for different um, kinds of fish because some is much saltier, it, some is much sweeter, some is much more mellow. And at the at the very high-end sushi places, um, they probably won't even give you soy because if they want soy to be on the fish, they will brush it onto the fish themselves. I mean, there's all these... If you go to Japan, there are so many rules around high-end sushi. They are very mean <laughs> when you get in there. They're like, you can do this, you can't do this. Um, I, I haven't experienced as much of that here, but there are still a lot of kind of like, we're not going to give you soy sauce if we think that this needs soy, we'll put it on ourselves. Well, speaking of the local context, you've already mentioned a, a sort of a couple of places that have really caught your attention, but mm-hmm. could you describe a little bit more of the broader landscape that you're seeing at the moment? Sure, yeah. So originally, I mean, for the last, I don't remember how long they've been open uh, but Minamishima has been the kind of gold standard for, um, I think, 10 years or so almost now. Um, and it, you know, it costs 260 something dollars a person, very, very expensive. Um, and that was kind of, you know, there was a couple places in the city that were also pretty high end, but, um, Minamishima was really the, the one place that you could go for real, authentic Japanese high-end sushi omakase, meaning a meal that you don't have any choice in, they just give it to you as it comes. Um, And uh, in the last couple of years, a few places have have kind of taken that model and gone with it. Um, You know, Kisame has a chef's counter at the top floor that does a very expensive, very high-end omakase. For me, it was... That was a little, I I haven't eaten there in years. I ate there kind of close to when they opened, but it was a lot of um, dry ice smoke (laughs) and, uh, you know, blow torches and stuff. It was very impressive, but it was very, it felt like kind of Instagram impressive to me. Um, Again, could have changed completely since then. Um, And in fact, one of the things that happened is the guy who was the main chef there, um, he is the one that I said sushi on who has gone to open his own place. And it's completely about fish. It's just almost the entire meal is just nigiri, which is the rice with the fish over it. Um, and it's just one piece after another, this just really beautiful, fresh, gorgeous fish. Um, and so, so that's really nice. And, and, and there's a couple places like that. The other thing that I've seen, um, a lot of recently is that there's this trend of very high-end takeaway sushi, which um, is really interesting to me because it kind of does play on Australians' love of just takeaway sushi, but uh, there are people doing it um, at a very, very high level, and it does make it actually quite a bit uh, less expensive when you do it that way. So there's a place called Unimomo um, that uh, they do these gorgeous 
boxes. They, you know, come in these black lacquered boxes and it's just, it's really, really good sushi. I will say you do lose something in that transition from, I mean, if you were at a really good sushi bar, they, they cut the fish, they put it on the rice and they hand it to you and you just eat it straight away. So there is a tiny bit lost there if you've got a couple of hours between when it's been cut and when you're eating it. But it's still a really nice, um, you know, alternative, I think, if you don't want to be spending the whatever it is, you know, 200 bucks a person. Yeah. And broadly as a rule, we should resist walking and eating. I would say, I mean, you know, I, you did, again, do what you do what you like. And that is the beauty of the of the takeaway sushi roll, right? It's the one thing that you could just really just stuff in your face when you... But the sushi <laughs> you're describing, it sounds difficult oh, to do yeah, anything no, other would than be, appreciate. It would, I mean, it would come in a beautiful box and you wouldn't be able to do yeah. that. And you would, you know, it would be like trying to just eat caviar <laughs> <laughs> on your way down the street, you know? Exactly. Oh, amazing. All right. Well, uh, we look forward to catching up next time. I'm Besha, the state of the sushi is good. Thank you Yay. very much. Yay. <laughs> ah, that's right. Triple R. Bruce Gladwin is the artistic director and co-CEO of Back to Back Theatre, based in Geelong and driven by a unique ensemble of actors with a disability in which last year was awarded the International Ibsen Award, bestowed every two years in Oslo and regarded as the world's most prestigious theatre prize. This week, Back to Back is presenting Small Metal Objects, a show in the public domain described as part voyeuristic meditation, part urban thriller, and here to tell us about its much-anticipated rerun at Fed Square, the artist and performance maker joins us now. Bruce, welcome to Breakfasters pleasure to be here. <laughs> it really is so good to have you. Can you take us back to 1999 and the start of the theatre and where you've come from to uh, this take? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, the company started in 1987, so I'm the fourth artistic director. Uh, and um, so I've been with the company for 20, 24 years, I think now. And um, yeah, no, it's a really uh, incredible company. I first saw the work as an audience member and was totally inspired um, at the time. It was in the late 80s, post-deinstitutionalisation. A lot of people um, who had been um, housed and in large Victorian institutions in Victoria, like Kew Cottages or Kalula in Sunbury, had been reintegrated back into the community. And a number of artists in Geelong uh, working in theatre and music and visual art started running workshops. And with... Um, these people and and quickly it grew into a, a theatre company which then started touring um, regionally and then to you know capital cities and now now as the company's grown we've been working internationally for quite a few years now. Mm. And so over twenty years your involvement, what was it like to be bestowed with the international Ibsen? Uh, it's, a, it's a thrill, mm-hmm. you know. I have to be honest. You know, as a theatre company, you seek attention. That's the whole idea of it. So, <laughs> when someone says, "Gee, you're really good," we're going to give you this award. It's a, it's you know, it, feel, it feels good. And uh, you know, the actors too. They, you know, they can be touring for twenty, twenty-five weeks of the year uh, around the world. And it's, I think it's just great recognition for them as professional artists that, that the work they do is um, really valued and um, highlighted as being important. Now, small metal objects. Where take us back to the origin of this? Okay, so this show was first made in uh, two thousand and five and presented at the Melbourne International Festival. It's a show that's made for a public space. So the premiere season was at the Concourse of Flinders Street Station. And the audience sit in a, a you know seating bank, uh, wearing headphones. So if you imagine coming out at Flinders Street Concourse and seeing two hundred people with headphones on in a seating bank. 
if you're a commuter, you go, what the hell is going on here? And uh, the actors are discreetly kind of placed within the um, station or the public square. In this case, we're doing Fed Square this time. And um, they uh, blend in and uh, there's a story that's going on about a, a kind of subversive uh, financial arrangement or a deal which is suggested it's a drug deal that's happening in a public space. Um, but there's, you know, there's a number of dynamics coming happening at once. So there's this narrative that's playing out. There's also this dynamic of 200 people in one, all facing one direction, intensely listening to this very kind of epic sound score and the actors' dialogue. Um, and then there's the power dynamics between the audience and the commuting public, which constantly shifts. So this, the audience are both spectator and spectacle. And um, so for those commuting um, members of the, the public, they've got no idea what is going on. So there's a lot of confusion and kind of chaos in the presentation of the show, which is one of our objectives was really to kind of going, what, how far can we push the limit of theatre, you know, so that it's almost falling apart and, <laughs> and putting it in a really busy place and having a 1,000 um, commuters as extras, um, which we don't pay we're moving well beyond our budget otherwise um you know it's just a it's it's a show where you're just sitting on the edge of your seat every time it really is a fascinating and a thrilling experience as an audience member i was privileged to experience it in i think at that at that earliest um sort of staging and with regards to the intentions of the work you've just spoken a little bit about breaking apart the boundaries of theater and Mm. certainly offering something quite unique but can you tell us a little bit about maybe some of the other guiding principles and maybe some of the hopes for audiences? Yeah, sure. Well, the, the company itself is built around a core ensemble of uh, six actors who are neurodiverse, or some of them prefer to be referred to as uh, disabled. And so the work, they are the co-authors uh, of the work, along with myself and sometimes other um, guest collaborators. So the work is very much, um, I guess, quite idiosyncratic to those um, their imagination um, and often very reflective of, you know, contemporary dynamics. I think with this work, uh, it's really the main themes are around um, power and uh, what what is a definition of success, you know. Should we all be um, aiming to accumulate capital or are relationships and friendships more important? Um, and so it's a very kind of simple tale. It's... Um, you know, the, the philosophy is really to kind of centre the, the, those actors as the kind of creative core of the, the organisation. And how do you or like, how do you find, like, theatre to be kind of important or key in kind of breaking down different stigmas or narratives or kind of power dynamics like you mentioned well, in the work? I, I very much see performance uh, like democracy allows people to be seen and heard, mm. you know, in a very sim- simple kind of direct soapbox manner. Yeah. And um, it's really just about having the floor for a moment to have have one say. Mm. Um, and But also just diversity in terms of just being seen and, yeah, you know, who gets to be seen, mm-hmm. you know. Um, uh, you know, so that that's... And some of our actors are very kind of activist-orientated mm. and others aren't. And so um, I think the danger is in terms of the actors within the company is that they've always seen to be seen as one voice and they're not. They're just yeah. individuals again and each of them have different politics and different views on what should be, what sh- 
should be the company's position. Mm-hmm. How do you anticipate audiences have changed? I mean, the iPhone wasn't even invented in 2005. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, I, I don't know. Like, it's uh, audiences are in a slightly uncomfortable position with this show uh, and because they are the kind of um, object of the kind of strongest visual object within the show. Um, and so they can sometimes be very, very nervous about the experience of sitting in a public um, situation in, in a seating bank and being watched by others. Uh, I think it'll be really interesting to see how the, the public react to the show, you know, the passing public. And But I have to say, for very from the, the outset of the show, we you know, we presented the first season at, at Flinders Street Station during the Spring Racing Carnival. So we had some fairly outlandish behaviour of... People carrying their stilettos on the way back from <laughs> Flemington, and uh, in wanting to engage with the show, and we really, you know, there's no kind of parameters, there's no kind of physical boundary. Anyone can come and engage with the show or interact with the show, and often we have buskers come and set up in front of the seating bank, or um, people come and talk directly with the audience, and. All of that, just we just let it ride, <laughs> and so um, it, you know that's why I say it's 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 different every time. So you don't kind of discuss or go through like different scenarios prior to the show. You just like we'll just deal with it in the moment as it happens. Yeah, and well, the, it's it's hard to really pull the audience's attention away from the the story because they're listening to it with a very high fidelity headphone mix, and. Um, and the story is really engaging. So, you know, people can have their, the audience can have their attention taken for a moment, but then really then they're really back into the um, the narrative that's playing out. Mm. You've mentioned that your niche, I suppose, is theatre that almost falls apart. Are you, mm. are you ever tempted to kind of take it easy on yourself? Or <laughs> is it, what is it about hanging on by a thread that keeps you exciting? exciting? I, I think, yeah, no, I think that as a director you... There's this tension between control and chaos and um, the chaotic element in this is definitely putting it in the public. Um, other shows we've made, we've worked with... Uh, we made a show with the Nex, the Australian band, and they improvised a different score for each performance. I don't know, it keeps it alive in oh. a way, you know. Um, it, it, it embeds joy and... Um, difference in each performance tell us about these performances uh when yeah. are they and can you even rehearse something like this <laughs> yeah yeah no we'll be there doing a tech rehearsal today okay <laughs> um yeah no it opens tomorrow at 4 p.m and there's it runs from uh then thursday through to sunday at 12 o'clock and four o'clock brilliant and there'll be q and a's yeah there's q and a's it's part of the uh, vce uh drama theatre studies and drama uh, syllabus. So there's lots of uh, Year 12 students coming to watch this work and there's going to be Q&As afterwards for them to help them with their uh, comparative essays. All right. (laughs) Well, Bruce Gladwin is Artistic Director and Co-CEO of Back to Back Theatre and he's on the curriculum. Uh, (laughs) Head to backtobacktheatre.com for all the information. The show kicks off tomorrow, 4pm, then Thursday to Sunday, 12pm and 4pm. Bruce, great pleasure to meet you. Oh, it's great to be here. Triple. Ah. Comedian Maria Bamford opens one of her like specials um, by saying that 
um, her parents like invited her to see a movie and her response is like, of course, you know, I love you, you love me, that sounds like a lovely thing to do, yes, I'll be there. And then she continues on to say, but that movie turned out to be um, War Horse, um, which I haven't seen but it goes for two and a half hours. I take it she didn't enjoy the film and then she goes on to point out like, you know, this show, she's addressing the audience, she's like, you know, thanks for coming, apologies if this show is your war horse. I I just always thought it was quite funny. I'm not doing it justice but um, I had a similar like war horse experience where my friend sent me a text um, earlier in the week just going, do you want to see this movie? And I was like, yes. And then default, that's an excellent invitation to receive. Exactly. The same thought. Of course I want to see a movie with you. You're my friend. I love you. I trust you. You have my best interests at heart. I enjoy cinema. Yeah. Yeah. I love going to the cinema as well. Um, not kind of giving it much, much attention. And then so she selected a time and a date. She's like, great, I'll get the tickets. And so I went along to this 340 session surprisingly rowdy session uh, at the Novi yesterday. But what I – we saw Bo is Afraid, which is the new film um, by – he was the writer and director who did Midsummer and Hereditary, kind of like drama, horror. And – but – Is this with Joaquin Phoenix face or everywhere? Yes, this is it. Okay, so I knew – I'd seen the trailer maybe – the last time I was at the movies, but I was completely unsuspecting. Which what I, 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 oh, sorry to interrupt you. I have, understand that the director is particularly keen for audiences to encounter this film without any sort of pre-knowledge or preconceptions. So you were probably the ideal audience member. In I this was case. the ideal audience member. Absolutely, I had no idea. I was completely unsuspecting, and it's a full-on movie, but like it's a it's a roller coaster. But that is irrelevant. The main point is that as we kind of went hit about the two and a half hour mark. Oh, you know, I had my I had things to do in my day. I lent it to my friend. I was like, how long does this go for? And she smirks at me and she says, three and a half hours. Which I've just checked and is incorrect. So she's even like she withheld the information and then she gave me the incorrect information. In which direction is it incorrect? It went for three hours. It went for two hours and 59 minutes. I see. So I, I was like, I, I, we left. I was like, I can't do this. I have stuff to do. Like I'd hit mentally. I needed, I need to be prepared if I'm going to be seeing a film for that long. I'm not big on walking out of movies. Like I'll sit through. I think as I've gotten older though, I'm a bit like, nah, stuff it. I'll walk out. But, um, you know, I like to kind of see things through to the end, but I was really like, I was like, I can't enjoy this anymore. Like, I'm going to leave. So now with this new information, I I potentially left like five minutes from the end, (laughs) which is quite embarrassing slash refreshing. Now, good on me. Mm. You know, that extra five minutes, beat the rush, get out, use the bathroom. But I suppose the thing is, is like, do you think the onus was on my friend? Like, I feel like as someone offering the invitation, she thought it was three and a half hours that she should have disclosed that information? Well, you know, your friend, I, yes, plausibly, but it was under three hours. So it didn't... Just. Yeah, just. So it didn't tick over the threshold of alerting who you're coming with. But also... There are I'd some friends. I'd still flag, sorry, Daniel. I'd still flag around three hour film. 
Anyway, sorry, keep going. The it when there are some people that you invite mm. and you invite them because they're not going to be a hassle. Yes, they're not going to bitch and moan if they didn't like it. You, your friend hasn't even seen this movie. No, how are they supposed to vet everything before you get an invitation? Yeah, so. There is a smaller and there's a diminishing crew of people in my life mm. that I'm happy to rope into something I go to because it might be good, it might be bad, it doesn't matter. As George Saunders says, it's all content. Yes. And you get to hang out with me. Hopefully, that's a prize for our friendship. Absolutely. And she did actually, it's funny that you mentioned it, she explicitly said, because she had, um, like, visually, the movie is quite stunning. She's a photographer. Two of her friends, um, had seen it twice. Um, so they'd seen it once at the movies and then they went and saw it at IMAX. And so she was telling me all of this after we left though. And she was like, yeah, and it's, it can be quite intense. And she's like, I knew you were the only person who would probably be up for seeing it. Yeah. But it was just interesting that she'd done all of this negotiating in her mind, mm. but was explaining it to me as we walked out of the cinema. Cause I was like, I, I don't have any, I emotionally I'm spent. Um, I needed to do, you know, get get organised for the for the week ahead. I don't know. I felt like, especially doing this job, like your hours of being kind of productive, cognizant, like uh, a numbered. So yeah. you want to be. It is a huge compliment that you're asked. Oh, thank you. Yeah, a huge compliment. We had a fantastic chop top, and I did enjoy the film, I but it was sense. just yeah, quite... mentally prepared. I enjoyed it to a point, I guess, but. Um, yeah, mentally preparing for that. Because who's going to – you don't want to jeopardise the invitation by saying, Johnny, come see a movie, uh, full disclosure, I've heard it's harrowing. Yeah, yeah, you're right, and it runs for three and a half <laughs> hours. I love that we got the, the time – it adds another layer to the time issue here. I think also we need to come to terms or at least have a community discussion about the role of credits and – their place in a movie's running time. I like, uh, I think it should be factored in because I enjoy watching the credits. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I agree it should be factored in too, but maybe when it says 2 hours 59, it can say asterisk. Ah, yes, over three hours with credits. Or more likely I would hope Ah. it would be, uh, you know, minus 15 minutes for closing s- titles wow okay i would and then if you like the film you can ruminate and digest it through the closing titles Mm -hmm. or if you don't like it you say look it's not even the full running time because i would yeah i would imagine it would be that the full running time like the credits would be left out of the full running time because i feel like directors writers they're just trying to sneak as many minutes in to these films like obviously we've spoken about this previously they're just they're getting longer and longer. So the the full running time doesn't mean the closing credits. Is that a fact? That's not a fact. That's my what I'm maybe. Yeah, but the, this confusion we need to deal with. It. We need to clarify this <laughs> tomorrow. We'll come but back to you. You've had your wars. <laughs> Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.